Hello, everyone, friends and family, strangers, friends of family. This is Dr. Jim Hoven, and I am excited for another episode of the show today because I have a really great friend and an incredible wealth of knowledge on the topic of what our civil servants like police officers, firefighters, and our military go through on a regular basis and what we can do to help them. Today, my guest on the show is John Marks a specialist in the area of law enforcement because he was in law enforcement for 23 years, 19 of those as a hostage negotiator alone, which is a fascinating topic. Maybe we'll jump into. And he also worked as the media liaison for one of the agencies as well. So we'll get into all that today. And I just want to start by saying, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I'll tell you, you and I have been working on this for a while and <laughs> here we are. Today's the day. And so I would love to know if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit, how did you get into law enforcement in the first place? And uh, what was your driving force as, I don't know if you were a child or how that went, but can you just describe on, on how law enforcement be your, was your career of choice? Yeah, it wasn't my career of choice. I wanted to be a marine biologist and that's what I went to the university to study. But uh, uh, the shorter version is, you know, when I was in, I think like third grade, the Denver Police Department, I grew up in Denver, uh, came to our school and did a canine demonstration. I thought, ooh, that's really cool. And then uh, later on, there was a TV series called Police Story that actually had single episodes focused on different jobs. And one of them was Hostage Negotiator. They did a really good job with their program. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. But uh, I just always thought, oh, that's just too dangerous. While I was at school at the University of Colorado, I worked in the dormitories at night and the cops would come in for coffee and to check on me and, you know, check on things. And they would sit and chat and they became friends and they invited me to come on ride-alongs with them. I started riding with them. I started riding with the Boulder police. Uh, the first one was the university police. And then I started riding with the sheriff's office and ultimately became a reserve deputy at the sheriff's office. And then I sort of fell into the career and gave up on marine biology. <laughs> well, thank goodness for all of us as community citizens and for all of the different people that you're helping now that you made that choice. And obviously there were no accidents in life because you are, you're a perfect fit for what you do. And, and I, before we jump into what you're doing and how you're serving the community and our officers, can you describe to me what it was like as a hostage negotiator? What, what is the what is the feeling that you go through? Because there's so much on the line there. I, you know, I've never had the chance to even talk to you about this story in all our years of friendship. So uh, we're all hearing it for the first time. Um, well, I, I certainly loved what I did. And a lot of it just stems from a desire to be able to help people. And, you know, most of what we did was talking to people that were in crisis, whether they were actually holding hostages or not. Um, and that's, that's just a natural skill, I think. I mean, I, I don't know that I ever did anything to enhance that, but it's, it's exactly what cops do. It's what therapists do. It's what bartenders do. It's, you know, a lot of people just have a knack for building rapport with people. And I think I have one of those. And so uh, uh, working in hostage negotiations or crisis negotiations just came kind of naturally to me. And I really enjoyed it and I was very good at it. So it, it just seemed like, as you just said, it's kind of one of those paths that's laid out in front of you and you just sort of follow. Yeah, well, how did that then transition into the media? Because now you might be talking to people that 
are not necessarily wanting the, the best interest for you. So you have this empathy, this incredible ability to connect. And I know that to be true from your and I's relationship. And, and so now you step in front of a camera and the <laughs> media is there. They want to hear what's going on. And were you able to use some of the skills as the, the crisis team and, and hostage negotiation stuff? Did they transfer over into the media or is that a whole different type of communication? No, I would say absolutely. You know, in some ways, I think uh, you have to think of it as performance. You're on camera. You have to rise to the occasion. You have to exude leadership. You have to exude calm, uh, you know, depending on the story you're talking about. But to me, it was the exact same skill. I was there with information trying to help people. I was speaking to people directly, whether it's through the microphones or through the camera, and trying to reassure them or give them information. Um, you know, the, the media has been catching an awful lot of flack in the last several years. And I didn't have a bad experience. I certainly encountered journalists who were less than um, forthright. And I certainly had some bad experiences. But for the most part, I found the, the media to be very honorable and very helpful in what we were needing. I mean, they were a tool that we needed to leverage to get information to the public so we could get information back. So I had a really good experience. And in fact, one of the reporters, her name was Marilyn Robinson. She used to report for the Denver Post. At the time that I was working with her, she had been a reporter longer than I had been alive. And she was one of the best detectives that I had ever met. She would frequently, from her desk at the Denver Post, just using a telephone, she would frequently gather information faster than we could. And she would frequently bring information to me in the form of a question about things that we didn't even know anything about yet. So, you know, um, I, I've met an awful lot of really, really great journalists, and uh, they can be a tremendous asset to the police and certainly to the community. So I'm not going to be one to, to trash them. I love that. That's so impressive. And when you see that connection between different information sources, it really levels mm -hmm. up our ability to do what we do in, in anything. And I think we're seeing that now with the convergence of different technologies, which is a whole different show. But I will say this, um, watching you as when, when you and I were on the board together for um, the COPS organization, which for those of people who are listening, it's a great organization that serves the families, the, um, the coworkers, the parents, all these people that are involved with an officer has fallen in the line of duty. And, and John, when we were in our, in our time together there on the board, just watching you have that connection between the community, the other board members, the families that we were serving, it was, it was fantastic. And so I'm interested to know from your law enforcement career, what took you down the path of giving the rest of your life, as it's turned out, to serving officers, the families of officers, getting agencies up to speed? How did that uh, manifest itself? Well, that was a really good segue on your part, by the way, because, you know, the one thing I was going to say about serving police survivors, um, empathy is such a powerful tool, and I think it can truly help and benefit many situations. But I will speak from my own personal experience. Sometimes empathy can work against you because it allows what we call secondary trauma you know, you're there trying to help and you're really invested in people's emotions and you start to take on some of that pain and some of that suffering. And a little bit of that is good because it helps you be more aware and be more engaged with what you're doing. However, it can take its toll. And uh, that is exactly how I got into what I'm doing now. Um, 
when I left law enforcement, I was really burned out. I use that term. I was burned out. And I, I never really did much to dig into that too deeply, but I knew that I had seen too much death, too much destruction, poverty, you know, truly the worst of our society. And it was taking its toll on me emotionally. It took its toll on my physical health, my emotional health, even my spiritual health. And um, I knew that it was time for me to get out, but I didn't really dig into it too deeply. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly self-aware. I've been through uh, uh, several rounds of therapy. I, I took advantage of uh, counselors when I needed them, um, but I just used the term burned out. But underneath that term, I know that I had been suicidal. I had contemplated suicide a couple times in my career, and I just, you know, realized that I had to get away from all the negativity. A couple of years after I retired, actually, I went in, I started a customer service business because I wanted to focus on the happy side of the world and realized that really didn't work out. We can talk <laughs> about that later. Um, but, um, you know, I, I uh, wanted to be away from some of the negativity. And a couple of years after I retired, one of my friends who had worked on a different law enforcement agency uh, and had also retired early, like I did, took his own life. And it was a it was a smack in the face. Nobody expected. It's the same thing we always hear. Oh, you know, he was such a great guy. Nobody saw this coming. Well, he was the life of the party. It, truly, most of us that were his friends didn't see this coming. Um, but it is indicative of of people in general that can mask a lot of pain and depression uh, in the way that they interact with other human beings. And when he took his life, I started realizing, you know, maybe I wasn't alone with the things that I had experienced. Maybe I wasn't alone. Maybe that burnout is experienced by other people. And I started talking about his suicide and realized that many police officers actually take their own lives. I had been working in Westminster, Colorado at the time uh, for the police department and found out that uh, two of our neighboring agencies that each had suicides during the time that I was there working, and I'd never heard about them because we just don't talk about it. And I thought, well, I've been a trainer all these years. I've been a facilitator and a consultant. I can make a difference. And so I started writing and I started teaching and one thing led to another and here I am. And where you are is an incredible place. I've gone through, you know, you were kind enough to uh, share your book with me, Armor Yourself, because we have one of our children in law enforcement and he's on the sheriff's department and just over, he's only been in about four years and some of the stuff that, that he's seen and, and how he feels about it, it's not politically correct to talk about it, just like what you said. And, and so it was so moving to me that I asked you if I might, you know, use that information that you have in Armor Yourself to help him and share with him. And it's been profound. And one of the things that I love as your mission statement is that you are saving the lives of those who save lives. And not you specifically, but you with the, the groups that you've created and the programs that you've created, not only for individual officers, but for agencies. I, I just so resonate that with that, saving the lives of those who save lives. Can you give us as listeners any understanding of why in the culture that we have today, it's not more accepted for officers to literally have to go through these mental, emotional, spiritual wellness checks? Because we know they have to test for physical, 
you know, to stay active and do these different things. But is that changing in the culture? And if so, how is it changing? If not, how come it's not changing? <laughs> well, it's changing a little. It's certainly not changing fast enough for my taste. Um, you know, uh, let me just backtrack a little bit. I'm really good at coining terms. I've been a trainer for years. I try to help people learn. I coined a term uh, that's, that's used in, in my book called the police perfection paradox. And I wrote about it on our blog on uh, copsalive.com. And actually, it's one of the most viewed of all blog posts because apparently people find it, whatever their searches on Google, they find it a lot. Um, and this police perfection paradox is a little bit complex. I mean, the simple thing is that, you know, the public expects us to be superhuman. So we take on this personality that, you know, I'm invincible and that's a mistake. But going a little bit deeper in that, um, you know, we have our roots in, in paramilitary organizations and there is a need uh, in our profession for discipline and regimentation and professionalism. And a lot of that comes with an awful lot of emotional baggage, a lot of machismo that, you know, we are not allowed to admit weakness. We're not allowed to say we're hurting. We're not allowed to, to ask for help because it shows vulnerability. And we're not, we're not vulnerable because the public has an expectation that we can solve their problems and that we're superhuman. And so it works against us. And so part of changing our culture, trying to, to allow people to um, accept help when they need it is trying to break some of that cultural norm so that people can accept the, the help they need. Let me just take that a step further. You know, I, I frequently, when I teach, talk about the sports metaphor. So if the, if the military metaphor is suck it up, carry on, you know, got to get going, keep, keep after it, that's well and good if you're focused on a singular battle, which will have some sort of an end. One of the problems in policing, and, and I've been engaged in a lot of great discussions between military veterans and law enforcement officers, many of which are military veterans, and everyone agrees it's two different realms. It's two different theaters, so to speak. You know, in the military, even in the worst combat, generally you go out, you do whatever you have to do, it's horrible, but you come back to a safe place and you can kind of regenerate. Now you might say, well, cops get to go home every night, they can regenerate. But what we find with law enforcement officers is that consistently, it's just not enough downtime. It's not enough safety. It's a very short turnaround, then they're right back out. And that doesn't mean that every day is gonna be combat, but it might mean that every day is another tragedy. Every day is another drowning or a death or a murder or a rape, or a robbery. Um, and we find that the profession is very insidious in that it slowly, drip by drip, takes its toll on the psyche of the people that work. And, and I'm not just talking about law enforcement professionals here. I'm talking about uh, military people. I'm talking about uh, paramedics, and doctors, and nurses, and, and firefighters. It, it's insidious when you have to confront the tragedies of society every day. And John, you know, I want to add something on that. You wrote in your book that something that was really impactful that you alluded to here, but I, I want to make sure that all of our listeners understand it. It's not just the officers and it's not just the people fighting on the front lines if you're in the military or fighting the fires 
if you're, you know, in the fire department, it's the, it's all the people associated with that. It's the people that answer the phone that take those calls. It's the, the families of these people. So it extends it ripple effects out to a, to a high degree. And, you know, I did another show with a PhD and an attorney who are working on a concept called compassion fatigue. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's a, I know you and I haven't talked a ton about this, but it's been around for, for decades. And compassion fatigue is essentially that concept of, you know, you see it so often and, you know, uh, they were bringing it from the attorney perspective, especially those who are treating trauma victims, but it also goes into the healthcare world. And I had mentioned on that podcast into the law enforcement and civil servant world, when you see stuff again and again and again, pretty soon you get a little bit numb to it and fatigued, but then it, it wears on your spirit and it can literally lead to you finding depression and burnout and all those kinds of things. I imagine that to combine those two concepts, you have this ripple effect from the inside, the actual combatant, if you will, rippling out to all these people that can lead to this fatigue, lead to this burnout, and lead to what you talk about in uh, one of the websites and in the book about the, it's not the bad guys that are killing us as a law enforcement family. It's actually what's going on inside, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you really hit the nail on the head. There are two things there. Let me address both of those. One, I absolutely believe in compassion fatigue. And so if you think, if you're a law enforcement professional or you're a member of the public, what do you want your you know, cops to have? What do you want to see in your dispatchers and, and anybody that responds, firefighters, et cetera? You want compassion. You want professionalism, but you want them to care. And when that compassion fatigue starts to set in from just way too much, you know, overdose of trauma and tragedy, um, you know, you lose that capacity. And you're absolutely right. It is, it is so much like a ripple because then if it's affecting me and I go to help you, I can't perform at the high level I need to, to give you what you need. And, you know, there's so much to be said about body language and so many other things. We we're talking about empathy. You know, people read things in other people's body language. So if I'm not being compassionate with you and you're the victim of a crime, how horrible is that? I'm not serving my customer well at all. The other point Absolutely. that you made, and, and thank you for bringing it up, is that I absolutely believe that this, these traumas, et cetera, affect, it's a huge effect in everybody in our profession. I can speak absolutely to our profession, but any kind of service profession and, and look what our medical professionals are going through right now. But the people that are on the front lines, it affects everyone. So let me just talk about the law enforcement example. Sure, the, the street cops that respond to a homicide you know, get there, they're all charged up, try to figure out if there's going to be a gun battle, you know, what happened, start the investigation, maybe the, maybe it was a murder and the person has already left the suspect. And, and so things settle down, then it becomes a crime scene. Well, we have a whole crew, we're an entire team of people that respond to this. So there were dispatchers that got the call in the first place, they might have heard it from someone that was witnessing whatever was happening. That person might've been screaming, might've been afraid, afraid for their lives. Uh, then the officers get there, then the crime scene techs get there. You know, all the excitement dies down and, and it's the middle of the night and you're in some crummy house that is, uh, you know, dingy and dark and, and who knows what. And, and those poor crime scene techs have to be there for hours and hours and hours 
uh, with the bodies, collecting blood samples, you know, just doing the whole gamut. If you think that this profession doesn't take its toll on everyone, uh, you know, going back to the police department, the records people, the people that greet you at the front desk when you come to make a, a report, you know, they're the ones that have to process all the paperwork. They're the ones that have to process all the photographs, put together all the, you know, uh, crime reports, the the murder book, you know, all the things that go together when when we have a case. You know, to think that they are completely immune is absolutely wrong. They hear the stories. They see the effects on the faces of their peers, and they see the photographs. I mean, they, they are traumatized as well. So I think every one of these helping professions, when we talk about helping them, we have to help the entire team of people that do the jobs in order to give our customers the best service we can give them. And John, you know, what just flashed into my mind as you were explaining that so eloquently was the fact that our people want, need, and expect to be treated with respect and kindness and love, but so many of them, and not so many of them percentage-wise, but so many of the times when the officers are engaged with these people, they're not bringing the same in kind, right? They're bringing the worst parts of themselves, so the officers have to make a call on every single episode on where this person's at, what their intention is, and when you do that over time, that can start to weigh on you where you're not bringing your, your uh, highest intention necessarily. You, you just start getting worn down. And so with that, with that being the case, that can strain relationships between the police community and the communities they serve. And the intention is for the, to protect and serve, as the saying goes, that there be a, a tight bond between the officers, whether they be, no matter what civil servant branch they are with, and the community. And so really working on what you call a resiliency or a resilient officer, it's critical for the, the bonding between agency and community. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And as an example, as you were saying that, I, sitting on my desk here, I have a model uh, that, that I call the resilience molecule. But, you know, if you think back to your chemistry training, you know, a molecule is these globes that are kind of connected together. And my resilience this particular one um, has four different colored balls that are uh, attached to each other. And that's what I use to help people understand that resiliency is multidimensional. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if I want to go in and I want to help a single police officer get uh, stronger and more fit, um, first of all, I believe that there are uh, various components that that are required to be completely fit I, I like the term comprehensive wellness because in our in our society in general but it's certainly in my profession we all focus on physical fitness but the job requires uh, skills in multiple areas and requires strength so it doesn't just require strength physically but it requires an emotional strength we were just talking about that but um I think it requires a mental strength. And in, and when I use the term mental, I don't mean mental health. I mean cognitive health. I have to be processing very rapidly. I have to be uh, deducing. I have to be solving problems. I have to be communicating well. I have to be calculating things. 
So it takes its toll on us cognitively as well. And we need to be strong in that area. And finally, for the individual, we need to be strong spiritually. And and doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are. I think spiritual, the concept of spiritual health is much broader than that. Your faith could be one part of that. But even if you don't maintain a faith, uh, you have to have faith in yourself. You have to have faith in humankind. You have to have honor and integrity, trustworthiness. All of those things are in the spiritual realm. We need strength in all those areas to perform just as an individual. Well, that model I was talking to you about with four components, uh, I think if we're going to be truly comprehensively resilient, we have to focus on the individual. But if they're a healthy individual functioning in an unhealthy agency, then they're not going to stay resilient and healthy. So we have to focus on the health of the organization and its culture. And that's another component. The culture supports the organizational support systems. And then, as you just mentioned, the last of those four is the community. I I don't mean to pick on Ferguson, Missouri, but I think they're a, a classic example now in everyone's mind of a clash between the community and the police agency. And I don't know, it's been several years now since that uh, occurrence in Ferguson, but I don't know what it's like to police in Ferguson, Missouri today, um, because you can be perfectly healthy and you can have an agency that is healthy and supports you. But if you're trying to be a peacekeeper in an unhealthy community that hates the cops, then that has got to take its toll on your health and resilience as well. So if we're going to talk about comprehensive wellness, we have to look at the community side, the governmental side, the agency, the individuals. It's a fairly complex problem. And that's a tall order. What you're saying right there is an incredibly tall order, but one that we need to undertake. It's a mission that we as a people need to undertake. Because listen, if if I'm you know, driving down the street and I get pulled over by a police officer and I'm speeding and I'm like, yeah, you know, I get it. I, I'm, if depending on how I bring myself as quote unquote, the community to that interaction, it's going to determine in some way how that person, in this case, an officer reacts towards me. And the more awareness, the self-awareness we have on every side of this, including the, the governmental agencies that who should, in my opinion, be paying for training for not only police officers, but for the community to bring things together. For We all have to own our part. And I will add to your, your incredible statement on spirit. I do a word of the year, John. Every year I, I have a word and I focus on that word to try to add it into my DNA as a human. And this year, just so happens my word is spirit with a capital S. And so for me, that's beyond the spiritual side, which that is a part of understanding what about the the creator? What about, you know, that side of me, but also the spirit of how I do what I do? How do I take myself to a situation? How am I absorbing for the energy from the people around me in the circumstances? And I think that goes so far into the self-awareness and self-accountability piece that all of us need to have, because we can't put all this on the cops or the military or firefighters, or you, you fill in the civil service organization. We as a community, in my opinion, need to stand up and understand what our role is to be the best human we can be. Because if we did that, we'd have a lot less need for um, people to police us. And we would now work together to only take care of those who are, they have the worst of mental health issues, the worst of circumstantial issues, but it would be a far minority problem in, in my perspective. 
Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. And, and um, I don't want to make light of the circumstances around us at this moment, but as we're recording this, we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic that is affecting people all around the world. And I always try to find the good in things. And believe me, with all the people that are dying, um, and, and I have friends that have lost family members, so it's very hard to talk about good when we have so much bad. Nonetheless, I think that uh, this challenge for us, particularly in the United States, is an amazing challenge and examination of our democracy. And I have never seen a better example of us experimenting succeeding and sometimes stumbling our way through the differences between what is our responsibility as an individual, what is our responsibility, what, what responsibilities do local governments have for us, what responsibilities does our national federal government have to us. We're learning sometimes the hard way from this that, that, there, that we've taken things for granted and that there are really, you know, lots of obligations and responsibilities that we haven't really been paying attention to. And I think in some respects got caught off guard uh, about with this. And so I think that's a wonderful example of how, you know, it's, it's given us an opportunity to examine what's my responsibility here. What's my responsibility to my neighbors, to the people around me, to, you know, what's my responsibility to help the government, et cetera. Absolutely. And I think switching back now into our, our officers and our civil servants and our military, are there specific tools that you use? Because you do training programs not only around the country, but internationally. Are there, are there tools that you're seeing or using that give us a good idea of the, uh, we'll call it the wellness paradigm that you referred to, not only physical, but mental, emotional, spiritual are there tools that we have that accurately show that where we can see at scale how our civil servants are faring through this kind of stuff? Or is it, is it just going on, you know, what we think? <laughs> okay. I'm going to take a, two approaches on that answer. First of all, I, <laughs> okay. uh, the, what, what I heard you ask at the very beginning is are there tools they can use? Yes, Absolutely. Um, and, and sometimes ideas are tools. And even for the simplest things in the world, you know, just having something, you know, sort of spotlighted in front of us can be very helpful if we are not paying attention. And so one of the simple things that I try to do in my training uh, is that just raising people's awareness to the concept of comprehensive wellness is a big step, because if you just think that by going to the gym, three times a week and running and, you know, whatever, you're going to be fit. I disagree. I just don't think that that's comprehensive wellness. Even in the category of physical fitness, we have to look at diet. We have to look at hydration. We have to look at how much sleep you're getting. Those are all components of physical fitness. And yet that's just one piece of the main four quadrants that I talk about of the human being, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. So what I teach is that I I teach a concept called tactical resilience. And as much as that sounds really cool, the whole point is that the word tactical means strategic or intentional. And I believe that people have to build intentional resilience. I think human beings, but certainly emergency responders in the military, need to have a daily practice where they intentionally strengthen themselves uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. You have to consciously do it. Well, people say, well, gee, how do I strengthen myself 
spiritually well. I mean, it depends on what your faith is. But if we just focus on the concepts of honor and integrity, uh, you know, writing out your personal values on paper where you can read them and review them and examine them uh, is a really good exercise in discovering what you believe in and what guides you. You might even write out a personal credo that uh, that you can use to sort of motivate you. Those are training exercises that we can do in all those realms to enhance our fitness uh, in all the areas that would certainly be negatively impacted in emergency response. To answer the second piece of your your question is, you know, how do we know it's working? Well, that's a little bit harder of a question. And one of the things that my organization is working on this year, partly because we're all locked in and hunkered down, is we're trying to work on more assessments that will give us a better gauge of where we are, not only as individuals, but as agencies and as communities. Can we assess our health and resilience? Well, yes, we can. Uh, to make it purely scientific takes an awful lot of work, uh, a lot of research, a lot of money, um, because we have to establish really strong, tangible metrics. So, for so, example, physically, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about uh, body mass index, you know, can you correlate body mass index with other components of health? There are some studies that say you can. Some people don't like BMI. But um, when you're talking about the health of a community, we can start looking at social capital factors like employment, like recreation, like transportation and education. Um, you know, bringing all those together uh we have to find ways that we can adequately and quickly assess and that's what we're working on and sometimes it doesn't have to be purely scientific as long as we're uh, guiding goal setting then that's what we need to be doing so again i talk about being intentionally fit the the step back from that is let's set some goals for what we want to do to be fit and then we can access uh, we can assess our progress Right. Uh, John, those are brilliant thoughts. And, you know, with the, the couple minutes that we have remaining together, I want you to do me one quick favor. And again, two, three minutes. If you could Absolutely. give any, any officer, any civil servant, any family member, any of us, because we all feel some, to some degree what we've been talking about today, three, top three things that they could focus on, and it would scan across all of the elements, right? Just that you've seen, if there's a top three. I know that there could be a three for each of them, but just maybe the top three. And then also, how do people get a hold of you? That's really important because you're going to have a lot of questions from this. I would recommend people buy this book, Armor Yourself, for sure, if you have someone in civil service or if you just want to understand how that process works and how to be better yourself. So can you just finish with that for us? Sure. Um, Well, I'm not sure I can pin it down to three, but if I'm talking about the the human being, if I'm going to talk about your, your health in general, um, <clears throat> I want you to be attuned to the fact that we are complex beings and there are a lot of moving parts. So you have to think a little bit broader than most people do. One of the things most people overlook is sleep. <laughs> if I had to pick one thing that you could do as an individual to help you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, it would be get enough sleep. And sadly, you know, most people don't believe in what science has shown us, and that is that enough sleep is seven to nine hours of sleep. And, you know, I hate to tell you, a lot of cops function on six, five, 
And I think a lot of people in our society function on that. And the question is, are they functioning well? Are they functioning to their highest capacity? Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, but, but uh, let's talk about Let's talk about sleep. Let's think about that. Uh, secondly, you know, I think we do need to think bigger than ourselves. So uh, whether we want to focus on the concept of compassion or charity or uh, gratitude, all of those things from a spiritual point of view can make us so much better and stronger. You know, I am a mental health first aid instructor. Uh, the mental health problems in our society and around the world truly are are unchecked and um, they're a real problem that we've been neglecting for so many years. So I think that uh, if we want to be better human beings, we have to look at helping others. And so uh, if you want to, you know, the, the hand up, then put your hand out and, and help others. Let me see if I can find a third. Um, I, I, I think, think those two are solid. Man. Is that those, good enough? <laughs> you hit those two. Let, let's start with those sleep and, and gratitude and I think that goes a yep. long way. I really want people to, in these last couple of minutes to be able to know how they can reach you and how they can get a hold of your book. Thank you. Um, I'm really easy to find. <laughs> My name is John Marks, M-A-R-X. I am all over the internet. I have Facebook accounts and YouTube accounts and LinkedIn, LinkedIn and I just started on um, Instagram. Uh, our main website uh, for the business is called the Law Enforcement Survival Institute.org. The main educational website is called copsalive.com. We have a number of other strategies and, and projects that have their own websites, et cetera. But truly, go to Google. You'll find me. The book you mentioned is available on Amazon. It's called Armor Yourself, How to Survive a Career in Law Enforcement. But as you said, honestly, the things that I wrote about here would affect any human being. I just happened to work uh, in a career in law enforcement, so I wrote about what I knew and maybe someday I'll rewrite it uh, just with general language so that it, it speaks to everyone. But honestly, it can speak to everyone. John, I will second that. Uh, I did read it and it spoke to me, uh, not only for myself and how uh, I could be better for my son who's in law enforcement, but also for, uh, for me and for my family. So this was a powerful episode, my friend, and, and you just over-delivered. I'm so excited for people to hear it. So for any of you who have questions, please listen to uh, what John has to say, check out his information and uh, get in, in contact with him. In the meantime, John, I wish you nothing but wellness and happiness as you go on this journey. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart, not only for being on my show, but more importantly for the work that you're doing to help all of us uh, have a better community. You're welcome, Jim. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate your kind spirit and your generosity. And together, all of us can make this world a better place. Game on. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks, John. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.